Please turn with me to James chapter 3, verse 1. James 3, verse 1 is where we're going to start this morning. My first uh, pastor job, so to speak, was at a small international church in the uh, Czech Republic in Prague. I was 27 years old, so I was, I was young, I was single, I uh, was uh, excited about the adventure living overseas, and I remember the first week that I stood up in front of this small congregation, about 100 people or so, uh, they introduced me, and I, I stood up, introduced me, I waved, I said, ah, you know, whatever. Finished, got through the whole service, and at the end of the service, this woman walked up to me, and she said, you know, when you stood up and they introduced you, I thought to myself, he is entirely too young for this job. And then she just stared at me. And I, was like, I didn't know what to say. It was, you know, it was a little awkward moment. Finally, I kind of muttered something. I go, well, I'm 27. Does that help? And she looked at me for a minute. She goes, well, I guess that's better. And then walked off. I was like, oh, man. You know, I was already thinking I'm too young for this job. I'm not mature enough for this job. I was already feeling that a little bit. And she wasn't helping. What is maturity? How do we measure it? How do we know when we've arrived? Can we ever arrive? Can we ever say, now... I am mature. From a biblical perspective, maturity is not necessarily tied to age, and it's certainly not tied to accomplishments. It is tied to character. It's tied to our character. And James will remind us this morning that one of the greatest measures of our character is our speech. We can get an indication of where we are in that pathway to being conformed to the image of Christ by the words that we say. I want you to read with me James chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Now, this whole section, beginning in chapter 2 all the way through the end of chapter 3, is framed by the idea that as believers, our lives will be evaluated. So when James talks about judgment, he's not talking about heaven and hell. He's talking about the evaluation of the believer's life. Eternal life is a free gift. Christ died on the cross, paying the debt of our sins. Fully, finally, completely. The victory is won. The moment that we believe that Jesus died for us, debt of sin is removed, and we receive eternal life. We possess it forever. It can't be removed. We are eternally secure. At the same time, as we begin to walk with the Lord... God's working in our lives, and his intention is to transform us, to make us more like him. Things that we think, the words that we say, the emotions we feel, the motivations of our heart. And someday we will stand before what's called the judgment seat of Christ, which we'll talk a little bit more about next week. And at that moment in time, the issue will not be heaven or hell. That has been decided because we believed. But God will evaluate our lives. Did we live well? And what James has been doing in chapters 2 and 3 is giving some of those standards for evaluation. What is God looking for? What is God looking at in our lives? If you notice with me, uh, middle of chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, that Matt spoke on last week. It says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who's shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Again, the issue is evaluation of our lives, evaluation of a believer's life. James says here, chapter 2, one of the standards is how do we treat the rich and the poor? When we see rich and poor, do we evaluate people based upon their social status or do we love them because they're creatures made in the image of God? 
Earlier he had said, how do we respond to the vulnerable, the orphans and the widows? How do we respond to the rich and the poor? Chapter 2, 14 through 26, he's going to say, what do you do with people who are in your midst and have genuine physical needs? Do you say, be warm and be filled? Have a great life? James says, no, you should have compassion for them, but the compassion should be translated into action. Now, if you're really observant, you notice that I skipped chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. And the reason for that is uh, that it's hard. Okay, so I just, I just, you know, let's just skip that. No, actually, no, I didn't do, I did skip it, but we'll come back to it. Chapter 2, 14 through 26 is really hard to interpret. There's an incredible amount of debate over how to interpret this section. So I decided we'd wait until a home game weekend. Okay, so I, I love really hard passages, you know, even if I don't understand them. I like teaching on them. But I want to wait till more folks are around because this is, this is an issue. How do you reconcile James' concept of justification with Paul's concept of justification? How do you deal with James 2 and Romans 4 and Galatians? How do you put those together? So next week we will dive into that section. We'll go back a little bit. The point to remember this morning is this whole section is about the evaluation of the believer's life. We will be evaluated this week. Our passage is easier to interpret, but just as hard to apply. It's a very challenging passage. In fact, my personal opinion is that James 3.1 is the worst verse in the Bible. Let not many of you be teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. Obviously, that doesn't apply just to me, but... To elders who teach and deacons and Sunday school teachers and home church group leaders and Bible study leaders, disciple makers of all kinds. If you're involved in teaching the word of God, James says, there are multiple standards by which God evaluates our life. If you're a teacher, there's another one, and it's your speech. Because you've been entrusted with the word of God, to whom much is given, much will be required. And if you're trafficking and teaching and training and discipling others in the word of God, God is going to evaluate your words to an even higher standard. You're using more words and you're speaking as if you're speaking the word of God. You're speaking on God's behalf. And so you will incur a stricter judgment. James says to this probably these small congregations scattered, he says, watch out. Everybody wants to stand up in front. But beware, you will incur a stricter judgment. Now, enough about me, now let's talk about you. Fortunately, James uh, extends this principle and he says, in fact, the speech of all believers is important, not just those who teach. God evaluates all of us based upon the words that come out of our mouths. Read with me James chapter 3, verse 2. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. In other words, James says, our words are ginormously significant. Now, you're saying to yourself, Brian, ginormous is not even a word, right? I know you're saying that. But I've always wanted to use it in a sermon. (laughs) So, a few years ago... um, my kids started using the word ginormous. And I said, you know, that's not a word. Ginormous is not a word. And they said, oh, yes, it is a word. Jerry, one of our former college interns, taught us the word ginormous. Ginormous is a word, so I stopped letting our kids hang out with college interns. (laughs) 
I let him use the word. And, you know, it's funny because yesterday I was thinking about this passage. I was thinking about the significance of our words. And the word ginormous just jumped into my mind. So I just, I typed it into my word document. And you know what happened? Spell check didn't flag it. Crazy. So I, I, I toggled on the synonyms. And this whole list of words came down for ginormous. Gigantic. Enormous. Ginormous. Mammoth, huge. In other words, ginormous has now become a part of the English language. So our words are ginormously significant. They're huge. It's massive. It is enormously significant how you speak. For two reasons, James is going to tell us. First, our words are a measure of our maturity. Read with me again, 3-2. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Recall, we saw that word perfect, chapter 1, verse 4. Let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. James is not saying you can be sinless. The word for perfection means complete, whole, mature. Jesus used it of the Father, Matthew chapter 4. He said, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Recall we said Jesus wasn't talking about the sinlessness of the Father, which is true. He was talking about the completeness of the Father. And that is God's objective or goal for our lives, that we would be like the Father. We would be whole. We would be complete. We would be mature. So notice what he says. We all stumble in many ways. There are lots of areas of sin in our lives. But if anyone does not stumble in what he says in speech, that person is mature, able to bridle the whole body as well. In other words, there are lots of areas of sin in our lives, but some areas are really tough to manage. The tongue may be one of the most difficult of all areas. And so James says, if you see a person who really manages their speech well, they're not lying They're not stretching. They're not harsh. They're not impatient with their words. They're kind and gentle and loving and healing with their words. You can bet that that person probably has maturity in other areas of life as well. We all stumble in many ways. If you can manage the tongue, you're probably going to manage other areas as well. A few years ago, I got a a book. It was given to me as a gift. It was... um, Tombstone Humor, which is kind of morbid, but um, one of of these said this. It was a a small country church in England. It read like this. "Uh, Beneath this stone, a lump of clay, lies Arabella Young, who on the 24th of May began to hold her tongue. Which, you know, (laughs) it's a cruel reality that our kids can put anything on our tombstones, right? You're gone, and man, they may write whatever. What are they going to write? What are they going to write? about the legacy of your life, specifically your speech. Whoever can manage speech well probably will manage other areas of what, as well. Uh, the measure of our maturity, one of them is how we treat orphans, widows, the vulnerable. One of them is how do we respond to rich and poor? Do we show favorites? How do we take care of the needs within the body of Christ? What do we do with our speech? Speech is an indicator of our maturity. Jesus said, Matthew 12, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Or another translation is out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Eventually what's packed into your heart is going to leak out and people are going to get an indication of what's happening inside. 
So last week I went to Dallas for a conference and, and I lived in Dallas for four years and I always hated driving in Dallas. And as I drove into Dallas again, you know, I could feel myself getting tense again and there are all kinds of people out there trying to kill me. And I'm just like, ah, you know, I don't like driving here. And, and, and I just felt myself getting tense, feeling threatened, fearful. So I feel angry. And, you know, the words started flowing in my mind. And, and I, you know, I, I used to fantasize about having one of those microphone deals underneath the hood of my car and I could just pick up and I could just blast people. And I think in my mind of what I would say. And if the windows were down, man, I would, I, he, he wouldn't have anything to say. I just tear him. Ah, you know, and I just, and I, I start hearing these words again going through my mind. I'm thinking, so, and sometimes I would, if the windows are up, I'm going to say them. Where does that come from? What comes from my heart? Out of the mouth, the heart speaks. You know, sometimes, I'm not lying, but sometimes I'm driving and and there's somebody crazy on the road and they're doing stupid things and they're threatening me. And sometimes what comes into my mind is, Lord, maybe that person's distracted because they have a, a need, they're hurting, there's something going on in their lives, and I begin to pray for them. Literally, I do that. Not very often, but sometimes. Where does that come from? It's an indication of the condition of my heart. So most of the time, I just, I say to myself, don't say anything because the kids are in the back, <laughs> right? Don't say anything because that person might be following you to church. They might go to your church and they might see you, you know, being a jerk and riding up, gesturing, do, you know, no, you don't, don't get caught in town doing that sort of thing. <laughs> they might know who you are and they might be able to peer deeply into your heart if they hear your words. Our words indicate the condition of our heart right now. Our words also are a predictor of our future. And this is James' second point. Our words affect the course and direction of our lives. Read with me chapter 3, verse 3. Now if we put bits into horses' mouths so that they will obey us, We direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, they are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it boasts of great things. James gives two analogies. And the point of each is this. Small things can have big consequences. The bit in a horse's mouth. You can turn the horse to the left. You can turn the horse to the right. It's small relative to the size of the horse, but it can control the horse. So also a ship can be buffeted by the winds, but if the pilot has his hand on the rudder, he can control the direction of the ship. The bridle is small, the rudder is small, but they set direction. They set the course of life. So too, our speech can set the course of our own lives. Our our speech can set the course of, or literally, it's, it's the circle, this wheel of life, the direction in life for others as well. When I was growing up, my parents affirmed me and they affirmed my sister. Not just for the things that we accomplished, they affirmed us for who we were and who we could become. And they instilled through their words uh, the gift of, of confidence to step out in faith, to take risks. It was a gift of their words that helped shape our character. They were words that determined destiny. A few years ago, about 17 years ago, 
I said to a girl, would you go have lunch with me? I used words to try to set destiny. And she said, I'll get back to you. (laughs) But eventually she said yes, and it set the course of our lives. Words are powerful. The words that we speak, the words that are spoken to us. So often, though, we use our words not to heal and help and move people forward, but also to harm. Chapter 3, second half of verse 5. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. Tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life. It is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil. It is full of deadly poison. James says, tongue, the tongue is like a fire. Obviously, he's using tongue as a metaphor. It's a metaphor for our words, our speech. In James' day, almost all communication happened like this. People sat down face to face. Face to face. This is where it all happened. Uh, Most people were not literate. They couldn't read. They couldn't write. A little higher literacy rates in the Jewish community. But even writing was expensive, and it took so long to send a letter. So not a lot of letters were sent. People communicated like this, just face to face. So James is thinking primarily of spoken words, face to face. But in our day and age, we do a lot of transferring of words that is not face to face. We talk on the phone. We talk while we're driving. We talk while we're sitting and eating with another human being. We talk on the phone. Rather than talking to that person, I'm going to talk to this person here, right? We text while we're driving, while we're sitting with a human being. We're texting. Saw this older couple the other day when I was sitting in a restaurant. It was amazing. They didn't say a single word. You know, I'm thinking, these folks are in their 90s, and they both have their smartphones going, who are you texting? You have no friends with smartphones. You know, it's just like, what in the world? They're just going at it. Not a single word during the meal. But lots of words going out all over the place. They're texting. They're probably checking their Facebook status, right? They're tweeting their followers, right? They're tweeting all over the place. I had one of our elders tell me one time, he said, you know, never, ever, ever put in an email something that is sensitive and important to communicate. At the very least, pick up the phone or drive. Go go talk face to face. James is thinking just face to face. He says that can get you in trouble. How much more when you're tweeting? First thing that comes to your mind, beep, 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 retweet. Last year, you know, Gilbert Gottfried, he was the uh, Aflac duck voice, right? He got fired. I don't know if you followed that little story. He got fired because after the tsunami in Japan, he tweeted a bunch of off-color jokes. And so they fired him. Now, after he got fired, this is what he said. He said, I was born without a sensor button. And I thought to myself, grow one, but 140 characters and you're fired. 140 characters, you change the course of your life. 140 characters, maybe you change the course of someone else's life. Because words are like a fire. Man, they, are, they can be so destructive. Words destroy. Read with me again. Verse 5, second half. 
See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. Tongue is like a fire. Sinful words destroy. It's a really common image that James is using here of a forest fire. Probably everyone in their day had seen a forest destroyed. In Palestine, there weren't a lot of forests, but there was, there were, there was a low brush all over the hills. And within a matter of hours, the entire hill could be deforested completely. Think about it. In our day, we have all kinds of technology. We can put a helicopter over the fire. We've got fire trucks. We've got fire hydrants. And still, when a fire grabs a hold of a forest, it takes a long time to get it shut down. If you've driven through Bastrop, you see that it's devastated. It'll take decades for those forests to regrow, maybe hundreds of years for them to look the same. We went through Colorado this year. probably saw some of the pictures. Acres and acres and acres, hundreds of acres just destroyed. And the lives that were affected by those fires will never be the same. People lost their homes, who lost all their possessions. James says, your speech is like a fire. And you need to stop for a moment and think, how do your words impact others? Speech can be destructive. Sticks and stones may break my bones. Words, they'll never hurt me. That's the stupidest thing you can say to a kid, right? Sticks and stones may break my bones. You know, growing up, uh, I, different times, I broke both my arms and I broke a leg. I broke or sprained every finger and dislocated them. You know, it was rough on my body. I, I, I don't remember what it felt like. I remember, yeah, that hurt. That hurt. But I can't feel that physical pain any longer. The body has amazing capacity to heal itself, and the mind forgets that physical pain. But I can still remember things people said to me. And when I remember those words, it still hurts. It still hurts in exactly the same way. And even when I've forgiven, ouch. I'm transported back to that moment, and it it stings. Words are like fire. They're destructive. James says sinful words are also defiling to our character. Tongue is a fire. It's the world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members. That is, the tongue is this small muscle that is placed in our body as that which is capable of defiling the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life. How do people know you? Well, one of the primary ways they know you is through the words that you say. And when you speak foolish and sinful and harmful words, it defiles who you are. It sets your character. It establishes who you are among your friends and your peers and your family family members and your coworkers. That's a reflection of who you are, a reflection of your character. So if your words are, are harsh and impatient and unkind or deceitful and lying, People know you and they know your character by the words that you speak. James says it it defiles the character and it sets the course of your life. It it establishes this wheel in motion that sometimes you can't stop. There are effects that go on year after year after year and sometimes generation after generation after generation. Have you ever heard the the, uh, Hasidic proverb? It's about a young man who was gossiping about the rabbi. 
and slandering the rabbi. He's going all throughout the village telling bad things about the rabbi. And eventually he felt really guilty. And so he went to the rabbi and he said, Rabbi, I've been slandering you. I've been gossiping about you. The rabbi said, yeah, I know. I know you have. And he said, please forgive me. Is there anything I can do to make it up to you? The rabbi said, absolutely. This is what I want you to do. I want you to take a feather pillow and cut it open and walk through town. The young man thought, well, that's kind of nutty. But, you know, he asked and I heard him, so I'll do it. So he went through town and he took the feather pillow and he emptied out all the feathers, came back to the rabbi and says, is there anything else? The rabbi said, yes, I want you now to go collect the feathers. Just pick them all up. Can't do it. He had set wheels in motion. Maybe some of them he could stop, but others he couldn't. And rumors and slander and so forth would go far and wide. In the day of the spoken word, how true, how much more when you can go, boom, and it's gone. And it literally makes its way around the world. Our words are destructive. Our words are defiling. Third, sinful words are demonic. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. It sets on fire the course of life itself. It is set on fire by hell. Hell is the place that was created for Satan. And James says, that's where sinful words come from. Usually when we think about demonic activity, we we think very Hollywood, right? We think somebody's head is spinning or they're levitating or they're growling in a funny voice, which, you know, Satan can do those things as he oppresses people. But James says usually his work is much more subtle in our lives. Sometimes it's just bending of the truth. Sometimes it's just an angry, harsh word that stirs up more anger that is transferred from person to person rather than a gentle word that turns away the wrath. These are indications, James says, of Satan's activity in your life, stirring you up. Fourth, sinful words are defiant to change. Verse 7, every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless or an unstable evil full of deadly poison. Tristy and I have uh, some friends who have uh, a boxer, a beautiful dog. You ever seen a boxer? You know, beautiful coat on that dog, very strong dog. Uh, it, I hate that dog. Um, you know, it's, it's out of control. They, they've tried to tame their dog, but they can't tame the dog. You know, it's just always jumping up on people. I, I, just, I, don't, I hate the dog. And um, one time we had a friend with us and brought her over. And as she walked in the door, this boxer jumped up on her and went, and just, you know, with one of its toenails, just went zing. She had shorts on down her leg. And, you know, she was very gracious and she didn't scream, you know, and she didn't even whimper, whatever. She's gracious and kind, just, just huge mark down her leg. And I learned subsequently that the reason that boxers are called boxers is because they box. <laughs> Stunning, isn't it? Um, they apparently, they, they get with other boxers and they jump up face to face and they start, bom, 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 bom. so that's what they do with people too, with anything. It is really difficult to train a boxer to not box because it's in the boxer's nature to box. <laughs> so it's tough to do. Our tongues just love to let loose. There's something in the tongue that wants to unleash everything that is in our mind and in our heart. So it's hard to tame the tongue. 
I remember one time one of our kids was just letting loose and I let that child just go. And at the end I said, you feel better? And that child honestly answered and said, yeah, <laughs> I do. That's the flesh. There is something in us that, boy, after we've just unleashed for a moment or two, we go, oh man, that's a good one. That's really good. James says the flesh is defiant, specifically the manifestation of speech through our tongue, reflecting what's in our hearts. Why does this occur? Read with me in verse 9. With our tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who've been made in the likeness of God. From exactly the same mouth come both blessing and cursing my brethren. These things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs, nor can salt water produce fresh? James says, our words are inappropriately divided. He doesn't say it's impossible for Christians to have bad speech. He says it's inappropriate. These things ought not to be this way. But when our speech is divided between blessing and cursing, it is an indication that our heart is divided. This is what James has been arguing for the entire book, is that we need to have one heart committed to God. To love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love our neighbor as ourselves. But when part of us wants to do that, but then another part of us is stubbornly committed to our own way and our own will, it will come out in our speech and we will bless God and we'll walk out of here after praising and singing hymns and we'll trash another believer. We'll gossip or we'll slander or we'll stir up a conflict. James says this is just not the way it should be. So, how do we change? Or how do we tame the tongue? I want you to read with me. Turn back to chapter 3, verse 4. And as we're reading this together, if I could have the, the servers go back and get communion prepared for us. Chapter 3, verse 4. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, they are still directed by a very small rudder, Notice what he says, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires or wherever the will of the pilot wills. James says, we are responsible for our speech. Now, no one will ever completely master the tongue. No one is ever going to get to the point where they never let a word slip that's hurtful to others. But we still are responsible for our speech and we still can put our hand on the rudder and change. Will we fail? Yes, we will. But we can grow toward maturity and completeness in Christ, even with our speech. Let me give you a few thoughts how to move forward in this area. First, daily meditate. When was the last time that you daily meditated upon the effect of your speech on others? I want you to focus on that this week. Meditate upon the, the power of speech, the power to hurt and harm, the power to heal. We are told throughout the Bible that one of the ways God transforms us in dramatic ways is through the renewing of our minds. Let's let our our minds set on this concept for this week. That's our focus. Let me give you a couple of verses to meditate upon, maybe to memorize. Proverbs 18, 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. I can heal people and empower them through my words. Or I can crush them. That's how powerful words are. 
Proverbs 13.3, the one who guards his mouth, remember literally, this is saves his soul or preserves his life. He doesn't set on fire his life, but he sets his life toward contribution to others, honoring God. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Proverbs 12.18, there is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And one of my favorites from the New Testament, Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. That word for unwholesome is literally, uh, was used of rotting fruit. You know, let, let no stinky smelly words proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that we'll give grace to those who hear. When I was at seminary, I had to do a, a 30-page paper on this paragraph in Ephesians 4. I, I think God was telling me something. Daily meditate upon the power of your speech. Then let's get practical. Intentionally edify. Take chapter 4, verse 29, and pick out one or two people that you can encourage, exhort, empower this week. I'd encourage you to do it tonight before the week starts. Wake up first thing tomorrow morning. Maybe put on a three-by-five card or your daily planner or a reminder on your smartphone that pops up a name and a few things that you could say to that person. If you see them face to face, that'd be best. Or a phone call or even an email, something that's encouraging, positive. Exercising this spiritual discipline of encouraging and building others up. Oh, daily meditate, intentionally edify. And then third, consistently reduce. Consistently reduce. We will all be better off if we speak less. That never hurts. Publius Sirius was a Greek sage. He once said this, I have often regretted my speech, but never my silence. And I believe it was Abraham Lincoln who said, uh, better to be thought a fool than to open one's mouth and remove all doubt. <laughs> Reduce. The early monks had a spiritual discipline of silence. They would go for days and weeks, months, some years without speaking a word. That's probably not uh, the most effective thing for any of us to do maybe a day if your parents it probably doesn't work real well with your kids it's a little unsettling if you won't talk to them at all for a while but you could make a, a discipline this week to say you know I'm going to just reduce I'm going to actively listen I'm just going to ask questions in these relationships I'm going to be slow to speak in other words before I speak this week, I'm going to make a practice of just stopping and thinking, which is not magical in transforming our character. But what it does is it slows us up enough that we hear the words in our minds first and we can evaluate. Is this helpful or is this harmful? Is it true? Is it false? Does it need to be said? Does it need to be said now? Would God have me say it? It just slows us up enough that more of our speech becomes helpful to others. And then, fourth, finally, ask and keep on asking. Who can tame the tongue? We will always all struggle in this area. We're going to stumble in many ways. But James' basic prescription is ask God. He, he is a generous God. He wants our change more than we even want it. So ask and keep on asking. Beg God to do a transforming work in your heart so that your speech edifies others. What I'd like for us to do, um, 
as we take communion together is I'd like us to focus specifically on this topic. Ask God to search your heart. Maybe there's an area that you need to confess. Maybe there's a person that you've harmed with your speech. You need to confess that to the Lord. Maybe God is speaking to you directly and he's saying, you know, this really is an area that I want to see growth in these areas and these relationships. Let's ask specifically as we are served communion to have God search our hearts in this area. Will the servers come forward? And if you would hold the bread and the cup until we're all served and then we'll all take it together. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The blood is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Let's take the cup together. Heavenly Father, we are so deeply grateful for the words of Jesus that set the course of our lives. Not my will, but yours be done. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. It is finished. Father, I thank you that your son finished the work of our redemption on the cross. I thank you that he removed our debt forever. I thank you, Father, also that you raised him from the dead so that we can walk in power and newness of life, so that we have hope not just for eternity, but we have hope now that your spirit resides in us and is moving and shaping and transforming. And I pray, Lord, that you would do that, particularly in the words that we speak. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have placed your spirit within us so that we can speak words of life. Thank you, Father, that you have given us Jesus. Father, I pray that this week we would be conscious, aware of the words that we speak. I pray, Father, that uh, if you have brought conviction, we would have the courage to follow through. If we have harmed others with our words, I pray, Lord, that we would seek forgiveness. I pray, Father, that if others have harmed us, we would have the courage to forgive and to release them of the debt because we have been released of such a great debt. Father, I pray now that you'd send us out in the power of your spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Go and speak words of life. Have a great week.